0: You are listening to the Anormo Cast.
1: You know, there's too many ways that ice climbing is miserable: the screaming barfies, somehow being sweaty and freezing at the same time, and the Norwegian death metal your partner is cranking on the dark drive to the trailhead. But with help from Sportiva your boot performance and the comfort of your precious piggies can be resolutely checked off the blood-scrawled manifesto of ice climbing horrors. From big routes to next-gen tech climbing, Sportiva has created a line of futuristic mountain boots with old-school reliability and durability, like the warm all-arounder, the Nepal Cube GTX. So let's face it, at some point in the day, you're going to moan with pain. But let's make sure it's not because of your feet. Swipe right to sportiva.com, or your nearest high-end climbing retailer, to slip your hooves into a pair of these majestic boots. And remember, when you support Sportiva, you support the EnormaCast. Hey climbers, that rock that you lovingly caress every weekend is just never gonna love you back. Of course, it's never gonna suddenly ask you what you're thinking right now either. But devoting even a tenth of that energy into an actual human relationship might be a better bet in terms of love and companionship, no matter what your alpinist friends say. Peter W. Gilroy is here to help. Climber and jewelry maker, Peter can hook you up with just the right gift for that human in your life who just smiles when you get home late from the crag or who says, no, you're still hot, when you're clearly chubby and out of shape and stink of failure or who is still belaying you even though you're falling lower and lower on your proj. Inspired by the rocks we climb and the mountains we love, Peter's jewelry and accessories might be just the thing to convince your significant other that you're not an obsessive crazy person in love with inanimate objects. So go to PeterWGilroy.com and enter Enormo at checkout for a discount on art you can wear and to help the NormaCast. Listen, uh, uh, where you playing it Are You playing here? We're doing the uh the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. It's oh yeah, big place. That's a big place. You sold that time? i say really we should. Run Look, you better get up there before you panic. So those hands are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed playing with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. We're there. We're there. We're there. No, Today's show is brought to you by La Sportiva with support from Maxim Ropes and our friends at Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com, enter Enorma at checkout to get a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the EnormaCast. This is your host, Chris Coluce. It is February 19th in Colorado. It is 9 o'clock and this is episode 123 of the EnormaCast, a conversation with alpinist Kitty Calhoun. I ran into Kitty up at the Cody Ice Fest, which I went to a couple weeks ago or last week. I don't know. Time somehow goes by very quickly and very slowly at the same time these days. Very elastic time. Uh, anyway, was up at the Cody Ice Fest, ran into Kitty in the airport, actually, on the way there, and we ended up hanging out a bunch because she was staying at the same place, and I managed to get an interview one afternoon, which was awesome. And I wanted to also thank Ari Novak and the and the folks at the Ice Fest for having me up there, treating me with incredible hospitality, and didn't go ice climbing. They had some really challenging conditions up there, with a bunch of snow that week and then really warm weather, so a bunch of avalanche danger on the ice Guides had to make a lot of tough calls, but I think there was some real avalanche activity that, that justified their, uh, their calls on not getting on a bunch of the ice gullies. So instead of dry tooling, which is what a lot of folks were doing, I went dry tooling with my hands and feet in uh, the canyon there outside of town with some locals who showed me around, which was awesome. I want to give a shout out to them as well. And yeah, so I did an ice climb at the Ice Climbing Fest. Is anybody surprised by that? Anybody? I actually was really pretty excited to do it until I started hearing about how the ice was a little bit funky and or really dangerous. So I think they might have gotten around to ice climbing on Sunday and I'd already left by then. So alas, fun time anyway. Thanks again for having me up there. Hope folks enjoyed the presentation I gave and um, happy to come to your festival if the timing is right. Just let me know. Hey, other piece of business. Guess what? I'm going to Spain next week with the normal family. Which should be a lot of fun, and I'm actually going to go rock climbing. I hope, so uh, that's going to be pretty exciting. And I'm going to try to get some interviews over there with uh, some Euro climbers, some folks that I don't get to run into very often. And the only other little caveat is that the next episode might be a little bit late. But do I even have a schedule anymore? I've been shooting for the fifth and the twentieth uh, lately, but you know, you guys who listen know that that changes occasionally. So don't get too bent out of shape if the next one's a little bit late, but February's short anyway. All right, Kitty Calhoun, alpinist. Been in the game a long time. Got into the game when alpinism was a man's, 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 man's world, but carved out her own career. She was the first American woman on Dhaulagiri, 8,000 meter peak in Nepal, as well as leading expedition up Makalu and countless lower but highly technical peaks all around the world, South America, Alaska, you name it. So she's been inspiring climbers, inspiring women climbers in particular, and uh, her career has taken her to ownership, part ownership of Chicks with Picks, an outfit out of Southwest Colorado that tailors ice climbing and mountaineering curriculum specifically for women, trying to help them become independent leaders, stewards of the environment. She's a self-described former debutante And let me tell you something, Calhoun is not a name they sneeze at down there in South Carolina. I believe she is descended fairly directly from old John C. Calhoun, a Southern pre-Civil War politician. Vice President a couple times, I know at least under Jackson. I'm pretty sure. I could probably Google that, but I'm going to just go with it as my memory serves me. So I think that lineage just makes her journey into the Big Mountains that much more interesting. Enjoyed hanging out with her enjoyed listening to her, and I hope you guys do, too. So here's an interview with Kitty Calhoun. We'll just go ahead and start right in. Okay. So I watched your TED Talk. Mm-hmm to get a little information and in. in the beginning of that, you talked a lot about um, these labels was how you opened it, and whether, I'm not sure whether those were ones you were giving yourself or ones you'd heard, but as a little girl growing up in South Carolina, you were, you know, you said debutante, Southern Belle, sorority girl, uh, conservative, you know, these, these sort of la- labels that then, in the TED Talk, you transitioned into talking about how, you know, you would then moved into your truck. Or your uh, Subaru, yeah. and you you became this climber, and you know I like that you were setting up these sort of uh, what I think everyone else perceives as, as a contradiction. But can you talk about um, that upbringing and that sort of uh, those worlds maybe that you were you were being brought up in, and how you ended up in that Subaru, um, despite maybe these other paths that would have obviously led you, led you in a very different direction if you, you'd continued on sort of the debutante path, if you will.
0: Yeah, well, my dad was a big influence in my life. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I did—he was a lawyer. He was um, conservative, but at the same time, he liked— um, Uh, he liked to get out and ski, and there weren't many skiers at the time, and and he uh, took me out and did a lot of things with me. So, um, I did grow up going to a private Episcopal school, and sororities were big, and I had a hard time fitting in, but I just pursued my interest in sports, and then became captain of the field hockey team, and and, uh, at the same time, I didn't like staying around on weekends and being involved in the social scene. I preferred to go skiing with my dad on the weekends in North Carolina. And so there was sort of part of me that was part of the social scene at a private school in. Greenville, South Carolina, but then there was the other part of me on the weekends that would take off with my dad mm-hmm. to go skiing in the mountains in a time when skiing wasn't very popular. Not many people did it. and so, Well,
1: especially in South Carolina.
0: Right. Like the, a there's a
1: mecca for skiing that I, I come up with.
0: Yeah, except that. Yeah. North Carolina has the highest mountain on the East Coast. And so uh, there's good skiing in the mountains. They depend on snowmaking a lot. Mm -hmm. But um, so anyway, I I took to skiing and being in the mountains. And uh, also my dad was a minimalist. Mm -hmm. And so when he packed to go skiing, um, he'd just bring a ski bag and it'd be stuffed with his underwear and, you know, a change of clothes. And then he had his briefcase that had his toothpaste in it and his toothbrush. And he didn't travel with very much and i sort of took after that and became a minimalist myself and i don't know if i was just born that way or i modeled after my dad but mm-hmm. those were traits that were um sort of also opposite of the kind of um lavish lifestyle that that uh, i could have lived growing up in the in the south mm-hmm. yeah
1: what about climbing like what, when did that sort of come onto your radar as something besides skiing to do in the mountains
0: uh, so I, I took a course, an hour bound north carolina okay. hour bound course when I graduated from high school, and um, I was intrigued by it. It seemed challenging the most the thing that I was most afraid of was um, the climbing part because I was afraid of heights, and I decided well. I guess I liked challenges. That's maybe what drew me to the Outer Bound School. And I decided, well, I'm just going to be as prepared as I can be. So I started running and I was running eight miles a day by the time I went to that course. And, and I think that I was really able to just Enjoy the course and soak in everything that it had to offer. And when I got to the climbing part, I learned that if I just uh, didn't look down and only focused on the next move that I had to make, that I could uh, get through it. Mm-hmm. And um, and I decided I wanted to keep climbing.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, did you? So you have this dad who's who's super into skiing. Did you have any siblings?
0: Yeah, but uh, none of them. Um, went in the direction that I did, really. Okay. Yeah.
1: So, you know, was that something that then he saw as like, oh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to encourage this. Where, where was your, where was your sort of, I mean, you're out of high school now, so you're yeah. getting to be where you're on your own. Was there sort of, oh, this is great. We She's found something she's in love with, or, uh, you know, we wish that maybe Kitty would go in some direction that we had planned for her.
0: Um, I guess my dad assumed that, that uh, all of us would get married and marry, you know, um, in the upper middle class and we'd just be the typical housewife and mm-hmm. whatever. But he didn't push anything on us. Sure. He just said that um, whatever you do, just do your best. Mm-hmm. And so he never, he never uh, really expressed an opinion one way or the other as okay. long as we were doing our best and having, having fun.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Um, so I know that that both my parents were pretty were concerned about me a lot of times. I mean, I would tell them what I was up to. I didn't hide anything, and uh, and I think that put a lot of stress on them. But they managed pretty well.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. So where did this uh, transition then happen in terms of you know? Okay, so you, you got a little taste of climbing. It it becomes this thing that you know helps you get over your fears. When, how soon and what did the transition look like into uh you know this life as a climber outward bound runs thousands of kids through a climbing program a year and a few of them you know say well, this is this is like what i'm gonna do what did the transition look like from those first moments of like this is pretty cool and is meaningful to me to uh to being in that subaru
0: So I went to University of Vermont because Mm -hmm. uh, I'd put a dot on the map of the united states in blue where all the universities were and a dot in red where all the ski areas were and uvm had the most red dots around it okay so i went to university of vermont for this because uh, there were a lot of good ski areas there and i was skiing there i had a season pass my second year there the winter wasn't mm-hmm. very good and so i got a refund on my season pass and i would met an ice climber and so went out ice climbing and And I really liked the adventure, and I realized that I was kind of bored standing in lift lines at ski areas. It had gotten popular, and so I liked the adventure, the challenge, the beauty, the the partnership with my partner, Mm -hmm. all those things about ice climbing and climbing in the winter in particular. Ice climbing, and so I kept doing that, and then right before I finished school, I finished in the winter, a semester early, i went alpine climbing Mm -hmm. with somebody that i didn't know he's like oh yeah let's go do the presidential traverse in winter in a single push on a full moon okay so i said okay and then i was thinking well what's the worst thing that could happen and i thought well the worst thing that could happen would be something would happen to this guy something bad and would be above tree line and i'd have to like getting a sleeping bag with him and warm him up. We weren't taking anything. I decided we really need to take two sleeping bags because I wouldn't attracted him. I didn't want to get a sleeping right. bag with him. And so so we each brought a sleeping bag and, and, a, and a bunch of food. And so we ended up above treeline near the top of Mount Washington. And it was windy. We were post-holing and... He ran out of energy and he was getting hypothermic. He was um, stumbling and not talking coherently. And so I said, okay, let's just get to the top of Mount Washington and uh, then we'll stop and take a nap. And we got to the top, to the observatory and it was locked up. We couldn't get inside. So I found this sheltered corner. He got in a sleeping bag and I was just gonna let him sleep for a couple hours. I was gonna stay up and uh, wake him up in a couple hours. And this was around midnight, or or it must have been later, and then I fell asleep myself. And then Mm -hmm. I woke up, and I, I was shivering really bad. I couldn't stop shivering, so I started doing jumping jacks, and... I was still shivering uncontrollably, and then I ate a Snickers bar. I have a lot of Snickers bar stories. Yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> and a, the original
1: and a, energy bar.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I know. I should get sponsored, huh? And <laughs> yeah, so they got some money. Then yeah, right. <laughs> and so then then actually, I warmed up immediately. So uh-huh. I learned that you really do need calories, mm-hmm. you know, um, above exercise to warm yourself up. And and uh, I warmed up, and then um, and then got him up, and we bailed. But In the meantime, the sun came up, and I was... Mm -hmm one of the most mem- memorable sunrises I've ever seen. I mean, the sky was just fiery red. It was really gorgeous. And and so I decided that because of, you know, the beauty and the challenge and the um, adventure that I wanted to learn more about Alpine Common in the wintertime. So I decided that um, when I graduated in December, I would just move out west, live in my Subaru, and uh, go Alpine Common.
1: And so when you first were doing this and also your first ice climbing experience what what kind of what year was this about just to give us an idea of um this where you're
0: date me but wh- it was like um late 70s early 80s Okay. Yeah.
1: yeah so we're you know ice climbing was a very different game than what we're looking at these days oh, obviously yeah. even from you know my ice climbing was in the ni- early 90s and uh so you're a decade earlier than that um at least yeah. and i joke a lot on the show about how miserable it is um but you know it was a rough game in the 70s like and not a lot of people doing it especially like you know any sort of steep technical ice Mm -hmm. as you got into ice climbing and mountaineering you would have been unusual in the fact that you're a woman um your your personality always comes across as like very forward get it done gung-ho i I don't know if gung-ho is the right word but maybe there's more method to it than that um so what was it like entering any sort of like climbing scene especially in a place you know dyed in the wool place like vermont not just as a woman but how do you get into a climbing scene that's basically hiding out in ice gullies you know in the middle of winter up there or were was there like Mm. clubs did you join alpine clubs those sorts of things at the school how, how, right. In other words, how did your entry into that scene look at, yeah. at that time? Yeah. How did you find people to climb with?
0: Right. It it was a real adventure. A real adventure. Each day was a real adventure. And so uh, I joined the outing club so mm-hmm. that I could borrow gear. So I had my mom's hiking boots that she gave me that were flimsy summer hiking boots that were too big for me. They were leather boots. And... I had um, a pair of strap-on crampons and I didn't know there was a right and a left so they kept falling off my feet in the middle of a pitch. So I, I didn't, I was mostly following until I got the gear thing sorted out and quit falling right and right. <laughs> and at that time I borrowed, my first tool I borrowed was a wooden ax. And then you had like a little hammer because you needed a little hammer to take the screws out. Mm-hmm. So it was pretty much that combo for for a long time. I mean, I remember the Hummingbird came out because at first I used to bang my index finger a lot. My index finger would stay swollen and purple all winter. And I asked my partner if I was going to get arthritis. And he said, Well, that's just part of it. We all will. Yeah. And so then, but then with the Hummingbird, then I learned more of a wrist flick. So I mm-hmm. quit banging that knuckle. But yeah, that was kind of the setup and then we had these umbilical cords these leashes that we made ourselves that you could tighten and hang on because like to put in a screw was really hard and you would have to hang on your tools to put in a screw and eventually the screws got better so that we ended up getting you could get a a wrench you know and then you uh could have a a little slot cut out for it of the socket right. so that you could get that on the, the eye of the screw and use that wrench to mm-hmm. tighten, to turn the screw because right. these screws didn't turn. And so, I mean, it would take hours to, to lead a pitch. Right. And I, and I heard stories of one guy leading this pitch at Poco Moonshine, and it took him, you know, like maybe the first pitch of positive thinking or something, it, it took him hours to lay a pitch so a- after every screw before he took off from that screw he would smoke a cigarette and, and then take off to the next place to stop and put in another screw and put in a screw and have a cigarette and then he'd take <laughs> off and put in the next screw so so you would typically you would start these days like early in the morning mm-hmm. early before the sun came up post hole in you would right, always right. be post hole in to get to a climb say in smuggler's notch a a two or three pitch climb i remember because the ropes were shorter Mm -hmm. and then and then you'd get and then you'd get to the top and then you'd have to start wrapping down and always hope that you know your ropes would pull and stuff and then get down and then you'd glissade down um through the woods and then hike back to the truck and then we'd go off and get some boone's farm wine and ice cream sandwiches and it'd be (laughs) late by then eight o'clock at night (laughs) after all
1: that you wanted ice cream yeah yeah (laughs)
0: and
1: and that was the beginning i guess of it all yeah
0: that was a typical day back in those days
1: right right that's that's a classic the only time i've seen the cigarette thing is aid climbing actually (laughs) yeah for like eight hour leads right you know stopping in the middle and rolling one up for for the smoking did you get through college doing all this sort of stuff or did the road call you sooner than that
0: No, I finished college a semester early, and by that time I decided I wanted to learn more about alpine climbing. So in the winter time, so I made up this plan that I was going to live out of my Subaru, and I was going to spend January in Colorado, February in Wyoming, March in the Cascades, and April in the Palisades. And I was going to live on three thousand dollars a year. So I decided I would take out $3,000 of traveler's checks, and then when I worked during the year, I would set it aside in the bank for the next year. So I had this budget, so I had like $14 a week for food, so that meant no beer, there was no movies or anything, you know. And then and no then, ice cream sandwiches. No ice cream sandwiches. No, way. and uh, and <laughs> I had pure,
1: a pure Snickers diet. <laughs> <It's> like,
0: <laughs> well, I thought it was going to be like all pasta and pancakes, and I did right. make have these homemade pancakes that were so dense, like you couldn't right. finish two. So you'd like stuff the other one in your pocket to nibble on the rest of the sure. day, right? They mm. were super dense. But anyway, and, but I learned that that, that uh, vegetables are pretty cheap actually, mm. and so I learned to um, eat a lot of vegetables. And I figured, well, I want to be organized because I hate losing stuff. So if you have too much stuff, it's easy to lose stuff so, or not be able to find your things, and especially if you're living out of a car, and it can just be annoying. So I just had two of everything I needed. So I had, like, two pairs of socks, two pairs of long pants, two sweaters, you know. And and so that was all uh, It was all set up, so it was super, mm-hmm. super... Uh, sort of self-contained
1: sure yeah and so you know the the internet has like uh seems like it's always been here it (laughs) it hasn't and so in the late 70s or early 80s what what was it had we transitioned to the 80s by now going through college okay so either way you know the climbing community was was spread out it was regional you know there was kind of these these publications like like climbing magazine and, and a few others at the time that sort of brought everything together but how when you're looking at a road trip now you know it's like you can go to Indian Creek and know that there's going to be folks there for sure in March more than you want yeah. you know you yeah. know you can go what did planning this trip look like and how are you networking for partners you know what was your inspiration for that in terms of you know you would picked out these places mm-hmm. you know there's climbing there how were you what was networking looking like for you to get, you know, to find people to climb with, like rolling into someplace?
0: Yeah. For one thing, I didn't read climbing in magazines or any okay. books because it just made me too antsy because I didn't want to read about it. I just wanted to be doing it. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> and I had two friends <laughs> in Colorado and one in Wyoming. So, um, one friend was in Boulder and one friend was in Colorado Springs. Mm-hmm. So, I went to Colorado Springs first and looked up my friend, and she wasn't an alpinist. So I'm like, okay, fine, I'll just go do it by myself. And I didn't know what to do, so I thought, well, I'll just go do the 14ers or something. So I thought I would start with Pikes Peak. So this was in the middle of the winter, so I, or early winter, early mm-hmm. January. So I drove up the road as far as I could till it was closed, and then I got out of the car and just started walking up the road. And then it was really windy, so I had to start walking backwards. So I was walking backwards up the road towards the summit, (laughs) and I thought, this isn't it, this isn't how you climb, this this isn't alpine climbing, (laughs) (laughs) so I went back to the car (laughs) and drove to Boulder (laughs) to find my next Uh friend, so my next friend...
1: (laughs) I don't read Climbing Magazine, but I'm pretty sure this is not (laughs) what I'm looking for. This is not
0: it, (laughs) so um, my friend in Boulder, he's like, nah, I don't do any of that stuff, but my girlfriend's roommate does, one of her roommates. So I'll introduce you to him. So it turned out that was Charlie Fowler. Ah, oh, right on. Yeah. And so, I mean, I didn't know Charlie was famous <laughs> oh, or anything. But awesome. anyway, yeah, I went and I met Charlie. And so then I'm like, hey, Charlie, what, you want to go climbing? <laughs> he's like, uh yeah, but he he's like. You want to go where? And I said, oh, well, I was thinking about Rocky Mountain National Park. And he said, well, really, do you have, like, any AT ski gear? I'm like, yeah. He was surprised. Do you mm-hmm. have a beacon? Yeah. Do you have, like, an ice axe and crampons? Yeah. So he's like, okay, okay, uh-huh. we'll go then, you know. So we went in to climb a, the standard route on Spearhead or something, and we uh, skied in there and then and set up my tent. And then I said, I want to learn how to dig a snow cave. And he said, okay, well, you just go out and start digging and let me know. I'll come check up on you after a bit. And I'm like, no, that's not it. <laughs> so he, he didn't teach me how to dig a snow cave. But, um, <laughs> and so I, I spent a few weeks what there. going
1: to do? Yeah, right. <laughs> smoke some weed. Yeah, I don't you Get the snow
0: he, cave done. Uh, yeah, probably.
1: <laughs>
0: and so, um, so anyway, um, after a couple of weeks, I left there and came to Uray. Actually, mm-hmm. this was like in 1982, and um, then uh, and then after that month was up, then I went to Wyoming and actually ran into another climber who I knew from home. And he actually introduced me to another climber who uh Lyle Dean, who um, became one of my mentors, okay. climbing partners and mentors and then and then sort of uh we took it I took it from there and was just able to meet one person who would know another person, but it was really hard to find people who were interested in going alpine climbing in the winter time.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I imagine yeah, yeah um so yeah this big this big formative road trip. Were you also thinking in, in terms of like uh you know finding some place to 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 be then, you know, in terms of a place to live or or did you imagine at this point like an endless year by year um $3000 a year life for the rest of your life?
0: I was content with an endless yeah. $3000 yeah. a year yeah. year for the rest of my mm-hmm. life, yeah.
1: So how did that evolve then to uh you know you don't live in your Subaru anymore now? Um, what, what, where did that sort of lead? And and when did it, when did it, a, you know, you find a place to be and b you know, one thing about the the road trip in the $3,000 a year is it often doesn't afford you the ability to go, uh, and, you know, international, or once you start dreaming of great, great big trips. So that must've been in your head at some point of like, I'd like to go to Nepal. I'd like to go to some of these other places. So. Where is that, uh, yeah, where where does this road trip
0: lead, as it were? (laughs) Yeah, so, well, I realized pretty fast that different mountain ranges had different things to teach me. Mm -hmm. So, I wanted to check out different mountain ranges besides besides the Rockies and the Cascades. Um, I never made it down to the Palisades because it was a massive storm that year. Um, But I ended up, well, I figured... The only way to be able to afford to go climbing internationally was either to get a job as a guide or become a sponsored climber. Mm -hmm. And so I decided, well, the easiest thing for me to do was to become a guide. Okay. So I did in 1985 for the American Alpine Institute. Mm -hmm. And um, I had already climbed on my own in Peru and in Alaska. And when I got hired on in 85, they sent me straight away um, to guide in South America and then I got to guide for them in Alaska more and also in Nepal. Mm-hmm. And I got to see Asia, the Himalayas for my first time and uh, had a lot of great opportunities uh, guiding for them. A lot of great opportunities, mm-hmm. great learning experience for me. And um, and uh, so I guided for them uh, mostly overseas for a number of years, still living out of my car. So I lived out of my car for seven years. Okay. And then I finally um, decided that I wanted somewhere to be. Mm-hmm. And and I couldn't commit to a boyfriend. You know, I wasn't willing to make the sacrifices that that involved unless we were married. Okay. So um, so that's what happened. Okay. I found somebody that I... I well, I found fell in love, and I wanted to be married, and I, at the same time, I was willing to give up, um, and I was ready to give up living out of a car.
1: Right. Yeah. It's I don't know. Most most people find themselves ready at some point to, yeah. to stop living in a car. Most people. Some people don't, I suppose. But yeah, so you got married. You ended up, in, was that, did you end up sort of based out of the Northwest then?
0: Um. No. Colin had a year left in school in Yale, up in New Haven.
1: Oh, okay.
0: And then, and then we, uh, and then he got an internship fellowship residency at, at, um, at University of Washington. Okay. Yeah.
1: So then you were out that way. Yeah. Right. Okay, cool. Um, so when, in this era, like you have seven years, you're, you're working as a guide, um, and you mentioned Lyle Dean as a, as a mentor, who else could you cite in there, uh, kind of helping you along the way in terms of, or was there, maybe if not mentors, were there solid partners? Were there people that you could could cite as other other mentors, or were you really f- freelancing around with partners and trips and things like that?
0: I would say Lyle had the biggest influence mm-hmm. on me for sure.
1: Right. In terms of just uh teaching you, creating some sort of ethic in you about how you pr- approach the mountains and things like that, or, or simply technical um stuff as well?
0: It was an approach, I would say, you know, is he was, he is a minimalist and, um, and he is also, uh, you know, he believes in his approaches, you know, uh, you need to do your homework. You need to be prepared.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like that would be somewhere where you guys kind of found each other because it, you know, based on your, your plan for living out of your car and everything else, it seems like your personality was already kind of sorted in that direction.
0: Yeah, because you kind of yeah,
1: if you're you're making all these plans and budgeting and, yeah. you know, most people, not most, maybe, but a lot of people just throw their crap in the car and go and ho- hope it all worked out. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so it's like it's funny because the mentors, they influence you. But I think, you know, the way you guys probably connected was he probably saw this in you already. So you weren't driving him nuts as a partner uh, yeah. or whatever, you know, Is- like you're receptive to his ideas, as it were.
0: For sure. And I don't know if, you know, alpinism was used as a tool to develop me as a person Mm -hmm. or if or if I was already or already had those traits that are required of an alpinist. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, it has to be there has to be some mixture of nurture and nature. Yeah. Like everything else in the world. Right. Right. That you were you were drawn to it. So let's get a little bit into maybe philosophically, um, you know, what what do you think? Kind of building off of what we just talked about, but you know, what do you think in sort of your soul or whatever you want to call it is being fed by the mountains? What is it that draws you to that and and to this winter ice climbing idea? Uh, you know, versus while you're you're probably a very skilled and, and avid rock climber at times. You know, this is what's defined your climbing is is mountains and snow and being cold actually
0: mm. um
1: what do you th- i mean if you had to sort of put it into words if you can
0: <laughs> <laughs> so i feel like sort of that we're given these gifts and i and that uh, and uh and mine is my calling is to be an alpinist i suppose mm-hmm. and and uh and the thing that i really appreciate about alpinism is that for me, I think it's important to live each day as if it's your last because it might be. And uh, you especially realize that in the mountains. What that does for me is one, it helps me always try to think about my priorities Mm -hmm. in terms of what's most important in my life and, uh, and relationships as, you know, it's got to be the most important thing. And then also to be grateful. It, I think alpinism has taught me to be grateful for the small things. And I think if you're appreciative, then you live a much more happy and fulfilled life.
1: Okay. So when you're thinking about yourself, and, and this is also part of an evolution, we just talked about doing your homework, being methodical. What else do you think you bring to the game in terms of as a partner, like, what do you think your strengths are? If you've ever reflected on this. And also we're, we're talking about a career that's going on. What we'll, we'll do the math, you know, they 40 <laughs> a years. Lot of years. Yeah. Right. So, uh, what do you think is a made you, you know, like I said, a good solid partner in the mountains, but also uh, aside from luck, because it's, you know, we know mm-hmm. alpinism has this little moments of luck. Mm-hmm. over the years um, has has allowed you not just longevity in the fact that you're still alive, but longevity in that you're still drawn to it. It's still something that's feeding you. You're not burned out. You're not tired. Yeah. You're not. You're still going, mm-hmm. as it were. Mm-hmm. What do you think? A, makes you a great partner. B, has made you uh, just keep doing this thing okay. and loving it.
0: Okay. Okay. So, um, A, I think my strength is determination and... You know everything's a double-edged sword, right? It's also your greatest weakness sometimes. But I feel like I've been uh, been able to encourage my partners when mm-hmm. they had doubts, and and um, so I think that's been my the biggest thing that I bring to the table as a partner mm-hmm. is that I'm, I'm determined. I think we can do it. I have this confidence. I have this vision and and if my partner ever expresses any doubts, I think that we can have a conversation to discuss um the risks but I think that um I think that I've been able to be encouraging really encouraging when uh when um when it's been critical and mm-hmm. a in a in a in a uh at the same time using good judgment right so I think that's my strength. I think that um, in terms of my longevity in alpine climbing, um, uh, this is, was something that that I had to revisit recently during um, Hayden Kennedy's slideshow that we talked about, which sure. was one of the best that I've ever heard. And he talked about um, motivation, and that really hit me hard because... Uh, recently started alpine climbing again mm-hmm. a couple of years ago after having gone ten years without being in the mountains. Okay, and um, and I'm considering going back again. And um, and so I went straight home and called Michael, his dad, and started talking to him about the things that were bothering me. And one of them was this question of motivation. How do you know that your motivation is pure? In alpine common it's really important because the risk is uh, so serious. And I think it, there's an even greater risk if your motivation isn't pure. And so, because you would make decisions for the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. And it would color your judgment. So, um, he said that when he decided to quit alpine common he knew because the spark was gone. He just... Uh, and he knew right away. And so, okay. he, you know, it just wasn't worth the risk because the spark was gone. And and I knew what he was talking about then because when I went back into the mountains a couple years ago on an expedition to India, I thought, well, you know, I don't know if I'm going to still like this or not, if this is me or not. It doesn't matter to me either way. I don't have anything invested in it. You know, my career is – I've already hit the peak of my career. So, you know, I could go either way. I don't care. Just be interesting to see. And as just an objective observer. And uh, it was actually – you know, one of the funnest times of my life. Mm -hmm. And so, so I, so I knew then when I thought about that and talked to Michael that I still have that spark, you know, and it's okay with me when it goes away, I'll just quit. It's Mm -hmm. all right. Mm -hmm. You know, or, or if some other circumstances demand that I quit, that's okay with me, but I'm definitely grateful for the experiences that I've had, the partnerships that I've enjoyed, and the lessons that I've learned in alpine climbing been tremendous, uh, you know, more than I ever dreamed of. Because when I was a kid, when I was in high school, I remember talking to my French teacher saying, you know, why do I, why do I even need, why should I be taking this course? Why should I apply myself? I'm never going to be working for some business that's going to send me overseas, and little did I know you know that I was going to become a mountain guide and be sent to um less developed countries, mm-hmm. and I never dreamed that this is the path that my life would take
1: right what yeah. what did you what did that kid talking to their French teacher think their life was going to be like what what your parents had assumed you'd get married and settle down, have some kids?
0: yeah, I mean, I had no idea you mm-hmm. know I was just having fun skiing and being sure. being outside sure. in the mountains and and I did a lot of running and mm-hmm. And, but I, I had no idea and, uh, I was really worried about it, but, um, yeah, you are. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: the, uh, so the 10 years you said you were off, or, are you more referring to like going into big mountain expeditions or were you not climbing at all?
0: No, it was just big mountain yeah, expeditions. Yeah, so you're yeah.
1: fo- you still focused on ice climbing and, well, in the States and yeah. rock climbing and things like that. Yeah. Okay. So you are referring to like these, you know, these big draining expeditions. And
0: yeah, alpine climbing, right, which right. is a lot more risky.
1: Yeah, and more risky. Mm-hmm. Um, was there anything uh, specifically that pushed you to stop ten years or the, in that ten years prior? Or was it just did it just fade out and you were busy doing other things?
0: Uh, it just didn't happen. I mean, Jay, my husband Smith, my husband, mm-hmm. you know, was went off and went to Alaska with some other climbing partners that were as good or better than him, and so I'm just like, okay, well, I'll just stay home and hang out with my son, you know? Okay. All right. So, uh, yeah, because
1: this is, um, this would have been all through his, you know, sort of middle school teen years. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Okay. So that would be important as well.
0: Yeah. 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 So I didn't, I just looked at it as an opportunity to spend time with him.
1: Right. Um, Was there any sort of risk assessment that you'd made? And and like, uh, when you just mentioned Michael's comment was like, you know, the spark, not only is there a, has to be a spark, but. Uh, with alpine climbing, if you're if you're cognizant, you know, and I think the older you become, the more cognizant you become. You know, it's easy to just ignore all the risk when you're 22, mm-hmm. 23. Mm-hmm. The spark not only has to be there, but it has to be strong enough to to talk those things down. Because obviously, if mm-hmm. if, if Michael and he's a skier, he, if he could be magically transported into the mountains, he would go there because he loves it. What he what he decided obviously was like, look, I'm you Know the risk is there and it's not strong enough. Would you do any assessment like that, um, in terms of the risk involved, or was it more subtle or subconscious than that in terms of, of avoiding those trips, or or did it just logistically not work out that you could get on any trips while you're in this sort of period?
0: No, this all has to do with feelings, and I questioned Michael about about uh, that because about the risk thing because, um, the he takes just as much risk when he goes backcountry um, back skiing, skiing yeah, right. every day, and he sure. knows that. And so it's not, it for him, it wasn't about the risk. It was totally about the feeling, about the joy, about the feeling like you belong there at that time and place. Mm-hmm. And so for me, um, I think that... You know, there, I've had a lot of conversations and thought a lot about risk and is this worth it or is this being selfish or whatever. But the thing is, is that you can't change a person that's not right. Like I've heard stories of people saying, well, you know, if we're going to continue to be married, this doesn't happen between my husband and myself, but between other couples, mm-hmm. right? A spouse might say, you can't continue to go on these expeditions because it's selfish. What if you get killed? What about me? What about the kids? Mm -hmm. Well, the fact is, is that you're just telling that person that they can't continue to be who they are. Mm -hmm. And who they are is what they bring to the table in terms of the knowledge, the wisdom, the direction, the the relationship between that person and their spouse and that person and their kids. So if you as a person decide... I'm going to put these things on the shelf, even though this is not who I am. I'm going to put these things on the shelf. That's a personal decision that can't be criticized or judged by mm-hmm. anybody else. You right. know, whether you just decide to continue to climb or take risks while you're a parent or, or in a relationship or not, because, you know, you could validly say, I need to li- live my life. And through these experiences, I become a wiser person who can then then can help my kid when he or she is going through challenges that they inevitably will I'll have the experience and the judgment to be able to guide them um, instead of just putting your whole life on the table That's one way of looking at it and sure. if that's the way you feel, nobody can say anything against that right because that's who you are and you have to live you have to live the life that you've been called to live and I, I think yeah. it's important to re- reevaluate it all the time but at the same time, I have a hard time with people saying that's selfish or whatever.
1: I wanted to ask you a little bit about um I kinda asked about it earlier because I was trying to imagine this uh like you know, somewhat petite, you know, southern girl, you've got the accent and you're you're kicking around in Vermont trying to become an ice climber. Um it might it might have been a little shocking to and, and you know, probably a little bit of like eye rolling to some of the hardcore. Probably mostly dudes up there um, over your career, you know, as a woman who was in the alpine climbing when there weren't a lot and it's definitely grown. And in, in your career, um, do you have any sort of thoughts on whether or not that was something was really noticeable to you or were you just like headstrong enough to be like, take me as I am? I don't I, want, I don't want to hear about any sort of sexism or gender ideas. And then segging into the fact that you are part of of, um, the Chicks with Picks program and all that sort of stuff, which I'd like to talk to you about. So, yeah, what's your perspective on being a woman in this game for so long and watching the transition of climbing that where there's a lot more? I think there's a lot more women doing it, although, yeah, I don't know what the ratio in alpine climbing is still. But, um, yeah, do you have perspectives on that in terms of your place in that uh, sort of pantheon of women, you know, climbers that have achieved so much? In terms of Himalayan, you've climbed 8,000-meter peaks for the first time, uh, those sorts of things.
0: When I first started ice cl- rock climbing, ice climbing, alpine climbing, I didn't, I didn't, uh, I guess I was oblivious and naive, and it didn't really uh, enter my mind that I was unique, mm-hmm. and all my partners were men, and I enjoyed that, you know, I enjoy their company, and, uh, And I feel like I was pretty much treated as an equal or treated well. Okay. And working with chicks with picks was probably the first time that I really started climbing with women more than men. And on my expeditions, I I noticed a difference between having a woman on the expedition and not, it was always nice to have another woman on the expedition. There were never more than six of us, you know, Mm -hmm. two to six. Um, But climbing more with women. Once I started working with chicks, I noticed the differences in general and the relationships. Um, And, and that's been pretty interesting. For example, when you're, you know, common even just a sport pitch with, with another woman generally they're watching you, maybe cheering you on at the crux. You definitely feel that, that vibe, you know, and and uh a lot of times a lot of times and these are stereotypes, but mm-hmm. still a lot of times common with the man, you know, they're they're sort of uh not really paying attention, you know, yeah. There might might be figuring out what they're going to lead next you right, know, when, right. when you get done with your pitch, <laughs> as soon as you get done with your pitch sure, or whatever. Sure. And so, I don't know, that's a little different. I, and, and I think that it's made me a better climber, though, realizing that, because now what I do is I never look down at my belayer. Mm-hmm. I never expect any interaction from my belayer because it's really important for you as a climber, you know, when you're leading, to be focused mm-hmm. on what you need to do um, instead of, thinking about the belayer or whatever. Sure. And so I've tried to develop that focus to the point that, you know, if if I'm on the Crocs and my belayer's fumbling through their pack looking for a jacket or, or ripping open a candy bar, I don't even hear it. Like right. I try not to even hear it because I'm so focused on what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and so I think it's really important to, it makes you better calmer if you can sure. develop that kind of focus. Sure.
1: Yeah. So you, you've, you've, um, you're, Owner part owner of chicks with picks. Yeah. Okay. And can you talk a little bit about, um, the philosophy and what that organization's doing, what you guys are, are, are kind of, uh, why you bought into it, why you saw yeah. potential there and what, what do you think it does?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so Kim Reynolds saw this niche. It's been 18 or 19 years ago, I think. And, um, there just weren't many women out ice climbing, they, or if they were, they were just climbing with their boyfriends or husbands, and they weren't actually setting up the anchors or leading the mm-hmm. routes. Mm-hmm. And um, and so she saw an opportunity, and women learn better in an all-women's environment because they feel more, they're less intimidated, they feel, feel more free to ask questions, and that's how you learn the quickest, is by asking questions. Mm-hmm. So um, she created these all-women's events, and we have sponsors who help us run these events. Who, and um, it's, been, it's been really successful. So I started working with her from the very beginning. And then a year and a half ago, myself, uh, Elena Renz, Don Glantz, Angela Hoss, and Karen Backel okay. bought the business, and um, and our mission is to educate and empower women through mountain sports, to uh, develop community and to foster environmental stewardship. Okay. And it's uh, pretty exciting for us because we have added international trips, and we have also added uh, backcountry skiing and alpine climbing to the mix. Mm-hmm. And um, we've had a lot of recognition and support within the the industry and also from our sponsors and also from the media. So right. it's been pretty exciting. Right. Yeah.
1: And, uh, yeah, so, I mean, if, if, if you were to sort of, um, if someone were to come to, come to you and, and ask you what, like, the experience would be of going to one of these classes, if I was, mm. you know, if some woman was interested, like, what is your, you know, what is your, like, one-minute pitch um, in terms <laughs> of what the experience would be like?
0: Okay, so this is for women of all levels who mm-hmm. they maybe they've never climbed their ski before in the backcountry, and they just want to, and they're intrigued. They want to find it out, find out more about it. Also for women who have climbed, but they want to learn to be self sufficient, okay. or it's for women who um, are climbing, but they want to learn to lead. Mm-hmm. Um, or or women who are climbers um, or skiers, but they don't have time to set up the logistics to do an international trip like ice climbing in Iceland or mm-hmm. or backcountry skiing in, in uh, Japan. So um, they come to us, and we're all about small ratios. So for climbing, it's no more than four to one. In the backcountry, it's two to one. And long hours, so it's uh, real intense. And they and they learn. A lot in in that small in those uh, usually the courses are two, three, four, five, or six days, mm-hmm. and I feel like they walk away. Feeling like they've definitely become more self-sufficient and mm-hmm. definitely more empowered, and also that they've developed a network or they're part of a greater right. network of women where mm-hmm. they can find partners anywhere they go.
1: Are you? Do you see them out there? Do you? Do you, are you absolutely,
0: about it? absolutely, yeah. everywhere, all the time. Little cells of these uh, chicks alumni are right. floating around.
1: Right, getting stuff done. Yeah, for real. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. What's the influence been on you in terms of, of teaching these women? or being part of the, even if you're, if you want to talk about just in the last year and a half, being part owner of this organization, you know, has that, was that Mm. a big change for you as someone, um, you know, had been kind of like, a, you know, as a guide, you're a little bit of a mercenary in terms of, you know, not having to kind of run the front business end of things. Um, you know, what has the experience of being in super involved in it changed you at all?
0: Well, you know, I actually got an MBA at University of Washington. Okay. So, uh, I've always had this because it seemed like a practical thing in case anything ever happened to me and I couldn't guide anymore. Uh-huh. Um you're very, yep.
1: you're very, you know, you get your ducks in a row right. in a row, do you That's not? Right. Yeah. I do. Okay, yeah. Okay, good. Yeah.
0: <laughs> if it's not <laughs> obvious, I'll just gonna say gonna that.
1: Toss this MBA yeah. <laughs> in the back, you know, <laughs> yeah. in case I need it like right. 20 years from now yep. or whatever.
0: Got to be prepared, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so um and so <laughs> people can read me like a newspaper. you know. Well, yeah. That's what we're here for? <laughs> yeah. The inner workings. Yeah. So uh, the biggest change for me, I think, is that I used to spend most of my time around men, and now it's probably mostly around women. And, and I and I never was really a feminist. I don't, I don't know if I'm a. I don't know if I'm a feminist now, but I do recognize that. That women have a lot of, uh, are juggling a lot of things, a lot of Mm. things on the plate. You know, I used to think that, or aspire to be a super mom and thought I could be, you know, like the perfect housewife, the perfect mom, the perfect business person, the perfect athlete. You know, I could do it all. And I realized that I couldn't, and I shouldn't even aspire to that. And, um, And I think that there are a lot of women who who do and put a lot on themselves, you know. And I think that uh, when there are a lot of opportunities, like a lot of opportunities have uh, um, opened up for women Mm -hmm. these days, that um, that there can be conflict in terms of strike and a balance. And and uh, and I also feel like there's still still some some ceilings, you know, there's still some expected roles or expected uh, levels of performance or whatever that are being broken, but they're still there, still some sort of self-concepts maybe, um, or self, self-image that that needs to to be gone, and the way we deal with each other in relationships and understand each other, and uh, I think that Kleiman is. I've seen it help women in all kinds of ways, in terms of, um, say, for example, in a marriage. You know, I, we had a, a participant who was an engineer from the southeast, and so she had already broken ceilings. But when she went climbing with her husband, he would sort of always be telling her what to do, and but she was a really good climber, and telling her how to do it mm-hmm. right. And so she was in a – she knew she could lead. And all I needed to do was show her a couple things in terms of technique and in terms of um, systems management, and she'd be a lot more efficient. And so I said – she said, what do I do when I go back climbing with my husband? And I said, well, tell him if he he respects you at all not to say anything while you're leading. Right. And so she did, And, and, and he didn't say anything. And she just, you know, climbed beautifully and set the system up, you know, um, quickly and efficiently and I think he, and then it sounds like he had a newfound respect for her and it changed their marriage even mm-hmm. you know translated into their marriage and, and it, so that's an example of the way that these women can walk away feeling empowered and it, it affects their personal lives it can affect their work lives it can affect them in terms of being willing to speak out for the environment mm-hmm. and there's increasing pressure on the environment now And just in terms of increasing numbers, you know, of of recreational users, but also different types of uh, uses of the land. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, in terms of climate change, in terms of the, you know, administration, whoever's in the administration. And I think that women can use this power to speak out. And uh, for things that they that they care about, you know, and and I think maybe this sort of maternal instinct, you know, becoming stewards, being good stewards mm-hmm. of the land, is something that women could latch on to and could make a difference. And uh, so I think it's a, it's an exciting time for women right now.
1: I wanted to ask you as we sort of go out here, the, this you know methodical person, I think you you very much present a leadership sort of personality to me um, in the way you just talked about chicks, you know, like it's very much this leadership personality. But you also told me a story, Ari, and I, want, I kind of wanted to come back to it maybe to finish. Climbing El Cap, climbing Tangerine Trip, mm-hmm. you know, where you suddenly kind of needed some support. Mm-hmm. And when you told me the story, you almost sounded a little surprised by it. Um, can you sort of talk, tell, tell me that one more mm-hmm. time, recounting, you know, the part on the trip where, uh, where you dropped all your hooks.
0: Yeah, right. <laughs> so um, my one of my partners, Karen Bokla, and I decided to climb Tangerine Trip. It was my idea. Uh, but Karen is game for adventure. Mm-hmm. And she had only climbed El Cap once. I think she followed somebody up the nose in a day or something like that. Um, but she was game and she's definitely got the skills to be to figure things out. She's spent a lot of time. She's a certified guide. She's been on rescue. She's uh, She was getting a graduate degree in physics, so I'm like, okay, she can figure this out. So uh, It's just
1: physics. Yeah, right. I mean, especially <laughs> the clinic, Yeah. Just physics.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and, um, and it was a bit stressful. This was our second attempt because the first attempt we had to go down because she had just been recovering from from knee surgery and, Mm -hmm. and, uh, she wasn't recovered enough to be on the, on that wall. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I made her promise to come back again with me the next spring and she did. And we, uh, were, let's see, we'd gotten to the top of the fourth pitch and, uh, that fourth pitch is a pretty stressful pitch because there's a downward traverse, you know, and it's pretty, and it can be pretty dicey if you don't, um, if you don't. Do things the right way. There's had already been a death on it, and um, we got up to the, we we're at the top of the fourth and hauled up our bags. And the next day we started up the fifth pitch, which is the crux, and um, it was a hard lead for me. I'm not that experienced of an aid climber yet, and um, I'd taken uh, this whipper upside down and it was pretty scary, and uh, gotten back up, finished that pitch, and uh, I actually broke the fifth pitch up into two pitches because it, it's super long and a uh, sustained diagonal pitch, mm-hmm. and then led the sixth pitch. That required a lot of hooking, and it was just getting dark. I had a bunch of my hooks on different beaners on my uh, chest strap, and um, so I could get to them easily, just like you get to a stopper and figure out which size. And and uh, I had to pee really bad, so. <laughs>
1: it's weird how when you're like you've been gripped, yeah. As soon as you're not,
0: yeah, like you gotta after go. You
1: get like as soon as I'm standing on the ground or something, yeah. It's like. The most important thing is to take a leap.
0: Right. Real bad. Yeah. Yeah. Which
1: two seconds later before you weren't even thinking about it. No.
0: No, you're focused. (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, I ended the chest strap to hang the harness on the anchor so I could pee. And then I heard this ding, 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 ding. And all my hooks fell to the ground because they were on this chest strap that I didn't see. It was dark and I was desperate. So when Karen got up. I hadn't done anything. I hadn't, I mean, I'd hauled up the bags, but I hadn't set up the ledge. I was just sitting there and I was pretty feeling pretty down, pretty dejected. And, uh, I just said, Karen, uh, I dropped all the hooks and she just patted me on the back and she said, it's going to be okay. Let's just put up the ledge And so I'm just like, okay, I'll do whatever you say. <laughs> and, uh, and then, and then that night, I uh, you know, after we, after we were laying down, I you know, came up, I was able to sort of recollect and come up with another plan. I decided, well, I can hook off my nut tool, but I only have one nut tool and there's a lot of hooking and, um, on the next pitch. So then I thought, well, I'll just, um, I have a bunch of beaks, so I'll try hooking off beaks. And, um, and so I, I told her my plan and, and, uh, we did it. But, I, you know, I think that um, I'm just figuring out my leadership style. I, I felt like the greatest experiences I've ever had before was actually on Makalu. And that was, we were a team of six and we spent 60 days on that route. And we did um, like the second or third ascent of the West Pillar, which is super technical. And, and the only reason, it felt like a team accomplishment. There was just the synergy of all of us working together. And, it's, and that's been um, the time in my life, the one time where I felt the extreme high that you can get off of being able to work together as a team, the synergy that can come. And I'm, and I'm hoping to feel that, again, from the teamwork that we can realize through Chicks, mm-hmm. the five different owners, because there's such talent diverse talent, diverse personalities, and just bringing that all together could be, will be a tremendous accomplishment. And I really enjoy the the dynamics of teamwork and especially small teams and the the dynamic that I felt with Karen on, on Climel Cap, that was the dynamic that occurred allowed us to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. Even though she wasn't the one leading all the pitches, it was her interaction with me that enabled me to get us together, together as a team. And that's, I really, I really think that, especially on alpine expeditions where you're really working together as a team or or multi-pitch climbs where you're really working together as a team, that's, you know, it's a real feeling that I get, I get real high off of. I mean, you don't, you don't always get that in the sport climbing dynamic it mm-hmm. de- it depends on your partner and how on your partner right uh sometimes it can be kind of a you you know individual
1: well you're yeah a lot of times you're not even climbing on the same route you know it's like you're trying yeah. yours and then right. you walk over and and the other person's trying there so yeah you're got a definitely separate day mission
0: yeah and, 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 and you and, and, meet up
1: at the base and and then, right. You know.
0: And your your performance shouldn't depend on that person's mm-hmm. encouragement like it does in chicks for sure. But I try to tell the chicks like, hey, when you go out in the real world, you may not get that. And you're still going to have to be able to perform. Right. You're going to have to be able to get it from inside yourself. Mm-hmm. And so on, on individual pitches, I try not to depend on my own anything from my partner in terms mm-hmm. of support. All has to come from me. But definitely there's situations where right. um, uh, where. It comes into play, and it's tremendous. And just the interpersonal relationships are um, extremely fulfilling.
1: Well, yeah, it sounds like you have a lot to learn still with this, uh, with this program and getting that, getting that all going. So that's got to be sort of uh, exciting as well.
0: It's real exciting because the, we, we, uh, we believe in ourselves, but, you know, our, our uh, alumni our ch- believe in us, mm-hmm. our sponsors believe in us. Um, the media believes in us. And so it's the same kind of support like that I felt from Karen, you know, that's going to be a, being able to work together with all these different stakeholders mm-hmm. um, is going to is gonna help us accomplish things that, we, that we've never even thought of, that we've never even dreamed possible. And that's what's cool.
1: All right. Well, thanks a lot for sitting down. Yeah. This has been super fun. And we had a couple little technical up and downs, but uh, I think we got something really <laughs> great here. Yeah. And, uh, Um, I'm glad we ran into each other up here in Cody. Me too. So um, thanks a lot, Kitty. Yeah, thank you. All right, folks, thanks for listening, and thanks to Kitty for sitting down. Goodness gracious, a legend, that woman. And you can check out what she's got going on with Chicks with Picks at chickswithpicks.net information about courses and everything else. You can spend some time with Kitty in the future if you want. That would be pretty damn cool. It was for me. Okay, folks, I know you've heard it before, but in case somebody's new to the gang, you can go to enormacast.com and click on the Help Out tab see what you can do to help the podcast advertise itself in some cases. You can also donate if you wish. Donations along with sponsorship keep this thing alive and in some ways put num-nums directly in to the normal baby's mouth with your patronage. So check that out, normacast.com, help out tab. All right, folks, we are in the middle season, some rock climbing, maybe some ice climbing left somewhere. It feels pretty warm out here in the west. Things are falling down, I believe. But uh, we're rolling into the springtime. So please, if you're like me, you might not have used some of these skills for a little bit. right? You've been skiing or you've been training in your deep, Training cave, and you just haven't been out there on the ropes. So, as you get back into it, it is time to do a quick brush up and review. Use your communication, make sure you know everything that's going on before you leave the ground. And of course, you and your partner better check your knot and check each other's too. <laughs>